headed to Mark chapter 2. Mark chapter 2, and let's continue. If you haven't been with us, we decided that what we would do between Pastor Art and myself this fall, we would be preaching through the Gospel of Mark, and that would happen through the fall, through the winter, through the spring, and probably through the summer, though it's 16 chapters. It's, there's so much material there. Let me start off by asking a question. If I were to throw it out this way, what is, in your mind, a scenic place, the greatest scenic place in the world that everybody should go see? The what? Wow. Wow. Anybody else have a place? Okay. Anybody else have a place? Nantucket? Okay. What did you say over here? Okay. If you were to say, what is the greatest song? What would you say? The greatest song. Amazing Grace, Jesus Loves Me. Okay. Where's Bob? Woodmark? I know he would do Hallelujah, the, the Messiah would be his, his thing. Okay. And some of you aren't even thinking a hymn. You're thinking some song that you were wooed by. That's okay. Who's the greatest actor? Orson Welles? Who? Tom Hanks? Okay. The greatest, the greatest car. <laughs> the greatest dessert. The one without coconut, in my mind. Isn't it interesting? I can throw these out and say the greatest this. The, oh, let me, let me. The greatest president. Washington, Reagan, okay, okay. Um, the greatest football team. Oh, Lord. Oh. <laughs> if, again, let me go back to where I was starting. <laughs> Prayer request, here we go. For... <laughs> we all had different opinions, what's the greatest? And that's okay, because there's nothing wrong with having a variety of opinions. We might have what, you know, the greatest, based on our experiences. Mark is writing a gospel, and he's writing to people with all kinds of opinions. He's writing to a class of people that, for the most part, their greatness is going to be some, something with strength and speed and dynamics. But he wants to convince his readers about the greatness of Jesus Christ. And he's going to do that in the first couple chapters in particular, and then the rest of the book is going to build upon it. But as we think about this, I, th- I would look at chapter 2, the first 12 verses, and he mentions several, several facts, several truths about what is great that really make some difference about our opinions. It is so clear in this text. For instance, the greatest individual, greatest person who ever lived is Jesus Christ. He makes it so clear in Mark chapter 2. Let me read, and then let's come back and dissect some of the thoughts. It's a story you well know, and you could get up here and do a better study of it than I could, but um, let's, just, let's just read it, and then let's come back to that thought, the greatest man who ever lived. It says, And again he entered into Capernaum after some days, and it was noised that he was in the house. And straightway many were gathered together, insomuch that there was no room to receive them. No, not so much as about the door even. And he preached the word unto them. 
they come unto him, bringing one sick of the palsy, and which was born of four men. And when they could not come near unto him because of the press, they uncovered the roof where he was. And when they had broken it up, they let down the bed wherein the sick of the palsy lay. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the sick of the palsy, Son, your sins be forgiven you. But there were certain of the scribes sitting there and reasoning in their hearts, Why doth this man thus speak blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God only? And immediately when Jesus perceived in his spirit that they so reasoned within themselves, he said unto them, Why reason ye these things in your hearts? Whether it is easier to say to the sick of the palsy, Thy sins be forgiven thee, or to say, Arise, take up your bed and walk, but that you may know that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins, he said to the sick of the palsy, I say unto you, Arise, take up your bed, and go thy way into your house. And immediately he arose, took up the bed, went forth before them all, insomuch that they were all amazed, and glorified God, saying, We never saw it on this fashion before. The greatest person, this is Mark's proposition, the greatest person is Jesus Christ. Now, you and I know this, that, that some of you have been through this process, that what we do is we're looking for a job or we're looking for an employee. And so they give resumes and they fill them out or you fill out a resume and you give that in. And the resume gives us some information. It gives us some background. But in the company where I worked and was the personnel manager for that company, there was no department I was at for a period of time. In that company, the one thing that the owner had asked us to do and what we were advised to do is don't go by the resume only, but call and get some references. Check out what the person was saying. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are the references. They are people who had seen Christ, who have gone, experienced life with him, and now they are writing their references, which stand out. And he is saying, Jesus Christ is great. Now, if we go back up a little bit to the beginning of the, of the book in chapter 1, go down to verse 21, which we've seen the last couple of weeks. It says that he showed his greatness in the way that he did what? Verses, chapter 1, verses 21 and 22. He goes in the synagogue of Capernaum on the Sabbath day, and when he was there, he was asked to stand up and preach, teach. And they said when they heard him preach that nobody spake like this individual. It says in this, they were astonished at his doctrine, so he's the greatest teacher. No, no doubt. Mark says, this is what you want to know about Jesus, great teacher. Then you jump down a little bit, verse in the, a little bit further in the passage, and you see in verse 25, that the, at this same synagogue, there was a man who was demon-possessed. And the demon spoke up in verse 24, verse 25. Jesus says to the demon, Hold your peace, come out. The unclean spirit had, that had torn him cried with a loud voice. He came out. And they were all amazed again, insomuch they said, What is this thing? So Jesus showed his greatness by power over the demons. Now remember in that day, the demons were were invincible. These people didn't know what to do with them. So Jesus' greatness shown again. Then you jump up to verse 31. Jesus is in the house of Simon Peter. His mother-in-law has a high fever, according to the Gospel of Luke. And Jesus came, took her by the hand, lifted her up, and immediately the fever left her. Here he is, greatness again, showing that he has power over illness. Oh, and then it's highlighted again. It says that evening, verse 32, that the people of the entire city brought those who were demon-possessed, those who were diseased. All the city is gathered together at Peter's house, at his door. And, he, and Jesus healed many of the sick of diverse diseases, cast out the devils. So his greatness seen in his power. Time and time again. Verse, jump down to verse 40 in the story between verses 40 and 45. He cleanses the leper, which was a, a sinned, 
uh, I'm sorry, it was a death sentence to have that, that disease. And so no doubt, Mark is saying he's the greatest person as a teacher, greatest person in his power over the demons, greatest person in his power over diseases. In fact, he highlights something else in verse 31, uh, 38. When the disciples came looking for Jesus, Jesus said, let us go into the next towns that I may preach there. This is a man who is disciplined on a mission. His great focus that Jesus wasn't going to get sidetracked. This is what God wanted him to do. Great dedication, great focus, great, great purpose or priority. However you want to phrase it, Jesus is the greatest. Now he comes into chapter 2, and Mark continues that. The story that we just read, he portrays Christ in his greatness for an audience who are, who are interviewing Christ in their heart. Should we take him as our Savior, shouldn't we? And he makes it very clear. Jesus is so phenomenally great. He does something that nobody else could do. Even when the Pharisees and the scribes heard him suggest it, they said, nobody can do this but God only. And what was it? Jesus Christ, his greatness, his ability to forgive sins. His ability to forgive sins. That they make it very clear. They in their... In their uh, what do we want to say? In their sin-captivated state, they still understand this truth. They knew this was a fact. Only God can forgive sins. They didn't claim that power for themselves. They didn't claim that it was something that they could do within their jurisdiction. Only God can do this. They make that comment. And so Jesus is portrayed in this text as being so great because of his ability to forgive sins. And again, we just follow that right up with his ability to be able to heal the paralytic. And in this time, in this case, you all understand the story. He says to the man, he says, your sins be forgiven you. And the leaders are questioning, how can that be? How can that be? And Jesus' response going from the less to the greater, or from the greater to the less, I should say. He uses that form of logic or argument, and he makes the comment, he says, okay, what's going to be greater in your mind, what you can see happening right here? Would it be okay if I told this man he could get up and walk, this man who we don't know if he's ever walked before? None of the texts give us an indication if he has or hasn't. We just know that this man is totally helpless. This man can't crawl to Christ. This man can't pull himself to Christ. This man is totally reliant upon other people, and they carry him to Christ. And when he comes there, He's unable to do anything as far as move, get up, roll up the bed or anything until Jesus says that your disease is healed and get up, take up your bed and walk. And he is totally, totally healed of his disease. Here he has been for whatever length of time, unable to walk. He muscles atrophied, but he gets up, has his balance, rolls up his, his I was going to say knapsack, but he rolls up his bedding and walks out of the house. And so there's a display that Jesus has the power to forgive, uh, has the power to cleanse the disease, indicative that he has the power to make the claim to forgive sins. And Mark wants us to understand that this is the greatness of Jesus Christ, that he can deal with somebody who is totally helpless, totally incapable of a disease that no doubt of his friends were gracious enough to bring him to Christ. They tried other avenues as well. And so this individual is in this really deep, deep state of inability, of illness. And Jesus just walks in, takes care of it. Your sins also be forgiven you. Now there's the greatness of Jesus' abilities. There's the greatness of his affection. 
Just like he did with that, that leper, he is moved, he is compelled to help out somebody with these needs. Now that's a portrayal, the greatness of Jesus. But the text gives us another fact that is not up to a poll. It's not up to what do you think? What is the greatest this way? It clearly portrays man's greatest need. We have the greatest man, Jesus Christ, but we have clearly portrayed man's greatest need. What is it? It's the spiritual life or the spiritual cleansing. Jesus sees the man. Now, we all know the story, okay? These, these fellows, are, they're compelled. They, they want to help have Jesus help their friend. They come. We know the story that there are so many people there because of the press or the great number of crowd. They can't even get in the door. That, it, that Mark highlights the door was overly crowded. They couldn't squeeze their way in. And these men are so concerned for him and so they go up on the roof and they start tearing apart Peter's roof. Do, do you, when you stop to think about that, do you think it was dangerous to tear apart anything belonging to Peter? Okay. He's a little bit of an impulsive guy, right? And he's back at their house and they're tearing it apart and they lower the man down and Jesus' first words to this man are indicative of what this man's greatest need is. He didn't say, I heal you of your, you know, of your paralysis. He said what to him? Son, your sins be forgiven you. The first, the first concern Christ had is indicative of man's greatest need. There's no doubt about it. If you and I go to, go to a hospital, we go to a children's ward, we are going to be moved by the great needs of those kids. You see the commercials that St. Jude's is bombarding on TV lately. A lot more commercials. I don't know about you. You can't help but when you see those, you're moved. And properly so when you see some child that has a, a terrible disease. When we hear about diseases, we're moved by that. Don Bishop was telling me when we were talking about Becky's case, he said that he had to go to the hospital with some of his lab work a couple of years ago, and he went into the cancer ward area, and they were sitting there, and he said he was just moved by listening to the conversations as people are in this room getting some treatment, that they're hearing for the first time that they have some terrible disease. And he says it was just, it was so humbling it was so moving to hear some of the different people's responses some of their their different comments of what they're doing and how they're going through it we hear about it here this evening your daughter-in-law your wife and it's it's a horrifying it's a terrible situation and we're moved we feel compassion we feel pity for them and yet jesus says that is something great this man is a this man's a paralytic this man needs to be able to walk it would be helpful but that's not his greatest need his greatest need that Jesus first addressed was spiritual cleansing. Son, your sins be forgiven. Do any of you remember the show years ago, uh, the Andy Griffith show? You ever remember seeing any of that? Okay, now I don't remember. This is way before my time. Not really. But um, the pilot episode, I remember reading about it years, years ago. The pilot episode was Andy Griffith, if you know the basic theme of the story, is he's a sheriff in... Mayberry RFD. Okay, he's a sheriff, and his wife has passed, and he's raising his little boy. His little boy's name is 
Oh, see, you guys know this. Okay. Opie is, is, you know, six years old or so in the very beginning. And Andy knows that he needs help. And Opie needs some kind of a mother figure. So in that opening episode, what he does is he contacts his, his spinster aunt. Her name is Aunt C. Okay. He invites her to come and live with them. And so in that opening episode, she comes and, you know, he's telling his little boy, Opie, that she's going to come live with us and she's going to help do mom things. Opie doesn't want her around. Opie doesn't think he needs a substitute mom. He thinks that we men can handle it themselves. So Andy, with all of his wisdom that he always displayed, he invites uh, Aunt B to go with him and Opie one day out into the woods. They go into the woods for a day of fishing and different things, and she's out there trying to do her very best. She's trying to catch the worms with Opie. She's trying to catch the frog. She's trying to fish. She tries to play catch with them, and she can't do any of those things. She's hopelessly, you know, totally incompetent in the woods. So when they get back, and Opie's been resisting, and as the whole show's going, and when she drops the football, he just, <sighs> when she can't, you know, put the worm on the hook, he just gets flustered. He doesn't need her. He doesn't need her. doesn't need her. So they get home that evening, and Aunt B realizes that there's so much resistance. She's not what he wants, and she says to Andy, take me to the bus station. I'm going home. This isn't going to work. And she goes to the room, and she's crying in the room, and Opie hears her crying. And he all of a sudden has this real change of mind and of heart. And he says, and I wrote down the words from when I read that episode. It goes like this. Pa, we can't let her go back. She needs us. She can't bait a hook, throw a football, or catch a live frog. We got to take care of her. She will never make it. Okay. The boy doesn't realize he needs her more than she needs him. But in his young mind, she is just an incompetent. But dad knew that he needed to somehow come to a point where he realized she's important. There are so many people that don't realize how much they need Jesus Christ, how important he is. You and I were there. We didn't realize how much we needed him. And so what happens is, at times we push off, we push off, but our greatest need is spiritual cleansing. It is having that forgiveness of sin that Jesus Christ can provide, which he does in this passage. This picture of the individual who's totally helpless, destitute, at the, at the behest of others to even move about. That's you and me. We are talked about in Ephesians as being dead in sins. We are talked about there is no good thing within us. We are talked about that, that we are in a desperate situation. And what's interesting, Jesus sees this man with all of his physical chaos and calamities, he sees him, but he is moved by his spiritual need. He is moved by the fact that he needs a cleansing. You know what's interesting? Matthew records this same thing. And Matthew adds another phrase that is really interesting. In Matthew chapter 9, verse 3, he turns to the man and he says, Son, be of good cheer. Isn't it interesting that Jesus makes the comment that if you get spiritual cleansing, that will provide the greatest cheer or peace or hope in life, even more than the physical healing that this man and his friends were looking for. Son, be of good cheer. Your sins are forgiven you. By the way, that's a truism of all of us. 
that when we are forgiven of our sins, we can still have financial problems. We can still have social issues. We can still have struggles with health. But knowing that our sins are forgiven, there is a peace that passes all understanding. There is a, there is a joy that is unspeakable, undefinable, comes from the glory of God, but it is a joy that comes to us when Jesus Christ gives us the spiritual cleansing. In this text, our greatest need comes from the greatest man. But let's do the third greatness. The third greatest that comes out of the text that is without debate, it is without taking a poll or raising hands to see what it is. The greatest act a friend can do is to bring their friends to Jesus Christ. That's it. That's the third greatest out of this passage. There's four friends that are mentioned in this text that are talked about who, according to verse 3, they befriend this man of palsy, which, by the way, is quite commendable. Were they related to him? Did they grow up with him? We don't know any details. But we know there's four men who are concerned about this man. These men are described in this text as people who believe in the Lord. We read that where Jesus Christ See, in verse 5, it says he sees their faith. They are individuals who believe that Jesus Christ can do something for this paralytic that nobody else has been able to do. Now, their faith isn't based on, you know, just some type of uh, flukish ideas. They have heard. They have seen. I want you to remind yourself. Verse 1, what town are we in? Okay, we're back in Capernaum. If you go back into verse 21 of chapter 1, where did Jesus preach? In what synagogue? What city? Capernaum. What city in verse 29, 30, 31? What city was it that they came and they flocked to Peter's house? Capernaum. What city was it in verse 32, verse 33 of chapter 1, that everybody gathers at the door and brings all the sick, sick people? Capernaum. What city is it where Jesus is getting up in verses 35, 36, 37, before dawn, having his prayer time, the disciples find him, and he says, let us go into the next towns. He's in Capernaum. But then we read in verse 39, and he preached in their synagogues throughout all of Galilee. He did go into the next towns. Then we read about how he's out in the region and sharing the word of God. These fellows have faith in Jesus Christ. Why? They have seen others. They have heard others. They know what Christ had done when he was in their town some days earlier. And so they have this faith in Christ, believing he can do what is impossible. Let's go to B. They took advantage of the opportunity. I've already given you just what I, what I mean by that, is Jesus was in Capernaum. He preached there. He healed there. He ministered there. But he has left the region now it says in chapter 2, verse 1, he's come back to Capernaum after some days. When he comes back, these fellows are not missing the, new, the opportunity again. They are going to take advantage of it, where they are going to all of a sudden get their friend to Jesus Christ, who can be the healer, the help that he needs. And so they, in their faith, believing that Jesus Christ could do something for their friend that nobody else could do, they, they make the effort. They take the opportunity to do that. There's a story told about a Terry and David um, Schaefer who lived in Moline, Illinois, a number of years ago. David had become a, 
a rookie in the police department there in Moline, Illinois. And so he was serving on the force, and she wanted to get him something special this coming Christmas. This is in the summertime. And she thought she knows what she wants to get him. She's going to start looking for it because it might be something rare to find. And it was hard to find. But finally she found it in one of the nearby towns. She worked it out with the, with the person who was selling it that maybe she could pay it on a payment plan and buy it over a period of a couple months. And she did get it. Finally, she made the last payment in the last week of September. She took it home, and she was so excited about this gift for her husband that she couldn't wait until Christmas. She gave it to him the night she brought it home. Didn't wrap it, didn't do anything, just gave it to him. And she gave him the gift, and he was excited about it, appreciative of it, and she said, now this is your Christmas gift. And so he went to work, and the first couple days, you know, it was fine, it was great. Then on the third day after she had gotten it, he gets a call while he's out on patrol duty. There's a robbery taking place in a local drugstore there in Moline, Illinois. He went there, and as he pulled up, the man ran out with a brandishing a weapon, aimed it towards him, didn't fire, but ran, jumped in the car and took off. So the high-speed chase occurs. They go through several streets. The, the drug thief, he, uh, drugstore thief ends up crashing his car, and it looks like he's knocked out. He's not moving in the front seat. So Officer Schaefer gets out of his car and he approaches the, the suspect. And as he's approaching, all of a sudden he's within three, four feet of the car. The man sits up and shoots him in the chest. Point blank rage. He falls back, but he survives because of what his wife bought him. A bulletproof vest. She was so glad she didn't hang on to it until Christmas. She gave it when the opportunity allowed. You and I, at times, we don't realize when people are going to have their, their encounter with eternity. We don't know when they are the most ripe for the picking. But we shouldn't waste what opportunities the Lord puts into our laps. And if we're good friends, we're going to do what this, these men did. We're going to take the effort in our faith. We're going to move, and we're going to try to take the opportunity to help people come to Jesus Christ. And let me show you something else. They were determined. They were absolutely determined despite all the obstacles. You read about people who are determined. Do you remember the story of Eric Lytle? That he, they made the movie about how he was one of those great runners you know, in the early 1900s, 1923. He's in the triangular uh, race there in, in London, and it's a 440-meter race. When they started off, he went maybe three, four meters, and all of a sudden the man in the next lane cut into his lane, tripped him up. There's no way he's going to win. But he got up determined. Lytle was determined he would do his very best. Ran harder than he said in any other race, and he won by one meter. Determination. These guys, in the same way, are very determined individuals. They had lots of obstacles. You can just write down the obstacles. They have a cripple. You're dealing with somebody who isn't helping you with their dead weight. They're totally, they're totally incapable. And think this through. They're going to carry this man up the stairs, the side of the house. They're going to get him on a roof. They're going to lower somebody who's on a, on a platform of some sort. They're going to lower him through the roof evenly so he doesn't fall off of this makeshift you know, board to be able to carry them down. They're determined. I mean, seriously, lowering somebody down, that would take work. This would take our effort. There's not only the obstacle of the cripple, there's the obstacle of the crowds. I don't know about you, 
But there are times where Deb will say, well, let's go to such and such a place, and we get there. And if there's more than three people in line, to me, that's a crowd. It's not worth it. And I quickly will say, well, let's go somewhere else. Let's go somewhere where there isn't any big line. It could easily be that these guys get there and say, it'll never work. And we've tried. We carried him these three, four blocks. We made the effort, and there's just too many people. How can we can't even squeeze through? These fellows were not dissuaded. They did not give up because of the obstacle of the crowd. Then there's a third obstacle here. The third obstacle are the critics. The critics are the Jewish people inside. Hey, by the way, everybody knows there's Jewish people inside who are the teachers, the leaders who are critical. How do you know that? Go to another one of the passages that gives you some of the parallel information, the Gospel of Luke. And Luke tells us that people from all over the region who were the Pharisees, the doctors, the leaders, it says in Luke 5 that they came from the whole entire region. I read these words in Luke chapter 5 about the same account. It says in verse 17, It came to pass on a certain day as he was teaching that there were Pharisees, doctors of the law, sitting by, which were come out of every town of Galilee, Judea, and Jerusalem. And the Lord was working in doing power. Do you know what this means? This goes back to that Jewish, that Jewish practice at that time. If somebody claimed to be Messiah, it was by, by rabbinic rule, it was by the law of the Sanhedrin, they have to send representatives there to interrogate, to investigate. There was an entire process that they would have people go listen, people go interview the person, and then come back to the Sanhedrin and say, yes, we should send others. They would send a second delegation there to investigate, to interpret, to try to engage in conversation, and then they would come back and they would make a public declaration. Yes, we think he's a kook. Yes, we think he is somebody that's worth listening to, and he's a valid teacher. And they would have to make this judgment. And so these, these uh, representatives, this wasn't going to be done in secret. This was done in an open fashion so that people would know. Now it has all these doctors, all these hoi polloi, coming to Capernaum, which, by the way, Capernaum is up in Galilee. This isn't the place where most of the Jewish um, Sadducees and doctors would want to go. Galilee, remember how they would say, nothing good comes out of you know, that Nazareth, that Galilee region. Their Galileans weren't even allowed to celebrate Passover the same day that the people in Judea did. So they have to go up into this second-class territory, and they have to, go, they have to then follow Jesus for a while. Well, they know that they're here. They're, criti they're criticizing him. They, they're critiquing him. And so the town would be aware of all these, these representatives with their doctoral degrees. These four guys, they don't care. They don't care if there's critics of Jesus. They don't care if there's criticisms of Jesus. They don't care if this will put them in bad um, standing with the, with the rabbinical leaders. They want to see their friend helped. And so they go up and they have the obstacle of the circumstances. The roof, tearing apart the house. And who knows what Peter was saying to them. And they let this man down. They were not going to be deterred to let their friend get close to Jesus Christ. Now, they don't realize all of his needs that Jesus can meet. They know the physical needs. But they want Jesus to minister to this man. They want this man to be helped by Christ. They do whatever they can to get him there. Just like some of you do with your kids. 
You do whatever you can to get them under the Word of God. Just like some of you have done with your tracks, with your, with your witnessing to relatives. You do whatever you can to try to get them to hear about Christ. The appropriate thing to do. The right thing to do. To have that determination, to have that belief, to take advantage of the opportunities. And then they witnessed a great outcome. The great outcome is said in this passage where Jesus says to the man, your sins are forgiven. He says to the man, rise up, take up your bed. And immediately, verse 12, he arose, took up the bed, went forth before them all, insomuch that they were all amazed. How many times does Mark have to say, the crowds are amazed, the people are amazed, and the people glorify God because we never saw anything like this in our entire lives. They're thrilled, they're excited. Can you imagine how the four men felt? No, I don't think they were pompously you know, proud about this in the sense that, look at us, but the thrill to see their friend helped, wow, amazing. I often wonder about his man is, is Horace Gigsby. He lived in, out in South Dakota, and it was right around 1924, 1923. A friend of his owned a drugstore there in that small town in South Dakota by the name of, uh, last name of Humphrey. He came to him one day and said, hey, listen, I, I need some help. It's winter, and we're starting to get afflicted by the flu epidemic coming through this region. You know, and it's hitting, kind of delayed, but it's hitting our area, and there's medicine, but it's only in Minneapolis. And so Humphrey asked his friend Gigsby, would you take your Model T car and drive the 250 miles to Minneapolis? Get the medicine. He says, I, I, really, I really am asking you as a favor because my seven-year-old boy, who they nicknamed Pinky, he's got a, been afflicted by it, and he's going to die without this medicine. So Gigsby, this older man, got in his car, and he drove his Model T across that winter stretch all the way to Minneapolis, picked up the medicines, and drove back at the fast pace of like 20 miles an hour, gets back after driving straight for like 30-some hours, gets back, gets the medicine, and as a result, the boy, his life is saved. It's kind of good because that boy grew up to be, you know, involved with our government. He ended up becoming a senator in Minnesota and eventually became the vice president of the United States. His last name was Humphrey. Okay, Hubert. Hubert Horatio Humphrey. If it wasn't for Gigsby's, his, his determination, his willingness to be a friend, you know, our na- national history could have some changes to it. One person can make a huge difference. One person can have tremendous impact. If one person takes advantage of the opportunity, if one person is determined, we, any of you ever hear of Edward Kimball? I, I would think this guy's got some of the greatest number of rewards and crowns in heaven. He was a Sunday school teacher that went to shoe shop and talked to D.L. Moody and led D.L. Moody to the Lord. We don't know about him, but God knows about him. And the impact he made by reaching out to one person. We never know who we're going to share the gospel with, who, who they're going to influence and how they're going to impact. But starting that domino effect starts with you and me. You and me saying in faith, the greatest thing we can do for our neighbors, for people we call our friends, is to let them know about Jesus Christ. He's the greatest person. He'll meet the greatest need. The greatest help we can provide is letting them know about Christ. Sharing him. Talking about him. Giving out the tracts. Inviting them to hear the gospel. That's our job. 
That's our great privilege to do that.